Hi, welcome back to Rorick Knows. This is Dr. Rod Rorick. I'm a plastic surgeon in Dallas, Texas. Let's talk about something that probably shouldn't be so controversial. Let's talk about gender affirmation. It's a, it's a deed, a, a pleasure and honor to have Dr. Amanda Gosman with us, who's a professor and chairman of plastic surgery at UC San Diego. Amanda, welcome. Thank you. Thank Good. you very much. Good. So how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. That's great. Pleasure to be here. Good. So, you know, why is gender affirmation so important and potentially life-saving, and how is it part of plastic surgery? People tend to confuse all of these issues. So can you enlighten our viewers about all of these things? Yeah, thank you. Um, it is uh, it is a very important part of plastic surgery. And actually, when you look historically at the evolution of plastic surgery, a lot of people point back to um, World War One and kind of the advent of plastic surgery. But if you look back even further, a lot of the procedures that were initially done actually were pioneered for gender affirmation. And gender affirmation is really trying to align someone's outward appearance with their true self. And this is something that, you know, when I was a resident in Dallas, like we it wasn't really on our radar. And it wasn't until 2014 when it, we started to have some um, approval for insurance companies to pay for this, that the, that the whole field really started to explode. But historically, there have always been plastic surgeons that have been providing gender-affirming care for different um, subsets of populations for which that service was covered. I think one of the most important aspects of it to try to wrap your mind around is that there are a lot of um, stigma, to, stigma about providing gender-affirming care, but especially when we look at the data that we have and how much it really impacts people, that this is really life-saving life procedure because there is such a high suicide risk for this patient population. And a lot of the diagnoses that accompany gender dysphoria that are in the mental health realm really come almost from like a PTSD equivalent, where people are living their lives as someone that is not congruent with their inner self. And that leads to a lot of um, problems with their social integration, with violence. Um, and that's something that really leads to like a lot of um, preventable harm for that this patient population. Yeah. So I think trying to understand the experience of these patients is really critical as plastic surgeons and something that we're very welcoming in terms of uh, integrating into our educational right. programs. Yeah, in fact, some of the initial work was done actually at Johns Hopkins in the 70s and 80s uh, yeah. when um, I was a resident. And, and tell us about some of these types of procedures that are most common that we see when we talk about gender affirmation surgery. Sure. So probably the most common procedures that are done are what are referred to as top surgery. So for, um, you know, depending on where, where you're transitioning to for female to male um, transgender individuals, that involves uh, mastectomy and then and for um, males to female male. transgender yeah. individuals, it re results in um, breast augmentation. So those are by far the most common. Um, there's also a lot of different procedures that can be done in, under the bucket of bottom surgery, which is trying to align your genital anatomy again with your true self. And uh, one of the really exploding fields is also, also in facial gender affirming care. And a lot of that is um, in the um, realm of facial feminization. 
information, which again, there have been people in private practice um, outside of in the insurance kind of confines that have been doing those surgeries for a long time and really pioneered a lot of the techniques that are utilized today. So tell us, tell us about some of those uh, in the facial feminization procedures, male to female, female to male. Tell us about some yeah, of those. Yeah, and and I know you'd be, you, you're, you know, Amanda is also a, is a, is not only a plastic surgeon, but she's also a craniofacial surgeon. So tell us about some of those. Yeah, this has been a really, really exciting expansion of the field of craniofacial surgery, which really addresses the anatomy of the face and head. And when we look at the differences in the facial skeleton between um, biologic men and and women, there are some very distinct differences. And there's been some really interesting studies about which part of the face is most aligned with your gender identity. So for example, the upper face where men typically have a heavier brow bone and uh, deeper set eyes is one of the areas that has the most impact on people being able to uh, identify someone's gender. Of course, there are some overall differences in terms of size as well as um, the configuration of the nose, um, making features smaller and more um, oval shaped in the in terms of the overall shape of the face is something that is also really beneficial. Um, and when we do a lot of this surgery, many of us who are craniofacial surgeons or craniofacial trained, we're used to um, utilizing technology and, and virtual surgical planning. So we'll actually take um, images of the CT scan of a patient and overlie them with a generic male or female skull and kind of see what the contours um, would be to be mm -hmm. able to align that with that um, gender. And that's a really helpful way to um, start that planning process, which so, utilizes technology and can shorten some of the time in the operation. Yeah. And these are these are major procedures because, you know, they involve craniofacial techniques. I mean, brow contouring, which is the craniofacial skeleton and uh, jawline right. contouring as well as rhinoplasty and all of those things. So these are not like small procedures. These are major procedures that require a lot of planning, like you said, to get obviously optimal results. Okay, so what about, okay, that's, that's for female or male to female. So what about some of the other procedures for female to uh, male? For cranial, for, uh, so female to male has is definitely a smaller percentage of people smaller. that are seeking that care. Um, some of the things that can be done for those patients are um, actually adding to the structure of the jawline, so either chin or um, jaw implants or using bone from other areas to help to augment those areas. Uh, rhinoplasty, again, can really be used in, in either direction. I think some of the challenges and why facial feminization is more common is because a lot of patients also are, are treated with hormone therapy and that it's uh, a little bit um, easier to really be able to appear uh, more congruent with a male identity based on the hormones and um, you know having that uh, added adjunct for facial hair and some of the changes that happen um, when they're on testosterone um, doesn't really make it quite as mandatory to um, have that change uh, happen surgically for them to be able to really be identified as their true gender. So why why has this been such an increase in uh in today, especially in the U.S., of gender-affirming surgery, what do you? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it really started in 2014, where they, you know, passed a federal law about not discriminating um, against this population in terms of health care, and it really took a, a while for for 
you know, surgical services that catch up. And I think the overwhelming, the most important thing about gender affirming care is that it really is done in a team. And there are a lot of challenges that this patient population face and a lot of adversity that they have to overcome that make it um, difficult to sort through the priorities and how to kind of create a treatment plan. So the most important thing is that you're seeking care within a center that um, really has a strong mental health component. The way that we organize our team is that everyone passes through a a social worker who is um, a non-binary individual who has a lot of experience in the community. They go through a full mental health evaluation and counseling. And then it's really, you know, depending on their readiness and kind of how, um, you know, their priorities are laid out that they would go on to any other treatment, whether it's medical or surgical. And having that team really be in close communication and being able to provide that care in it in a really coordinated manner is absolutely essential. I think it's very challenging to do that just in isolation without right. having that really integrated um, uh, support. And there are guidelines through the WPATH, which is um, an organization that kind of oversees a lot of this care and um, provides guidelines to providers to make sure that they can be in alignment with really what our best practice is. So I think it it has been hard to keep keep up with the demand for this type of care because it just wasn't accessible unless people were very wealthy and were able to pay out of pocket. Um, So now that it is covered by some insurance carriers and in some states, that, that demand has really increased and now that there are centers that are getting better organized and some fellowships that are now um, providing a really skilled labor force for people who are coming out of a full year of gender um, surgery fellowship in plastic surgery, it's really critical. In addition, a lot of the procedures are done in conjunction with other specialists, both like ENT and um, gynecology and urology. So, again, having that kind of comprehensive team approach and being able to really work through any competing priorities is essential. Yeah, and I think, you know, plastic surgeons are very used to that. You know, we do cleft craniofacial teams. We do all kinds of teams. We do microsurgery teams, breast reconstruction teams. You know, so we're very used and comfortable to that. And I think think bringing it more into, you know, that type of forum also makes it better, better outcomes, safer. I think that's very, very important. So, so what are some take homes uh, for for people that are listening to this? You know, because there's a lot of controversy, but also confusion about gender affirmation. I mean, I think, you know, the the key is, as I've heard you to speak here, Amanda, is it's all about doing it well, patient care selection, safety getting into a team and getting good outcomes. And I think those are all things that we do as physicians. I think that's very important. So what's next? What's next in gender affirmation? And what what are your take home points? Yeah, I would I would say that I think it's something that it's really important that we have an open mind about. Again, this was something that was very, very new when I was first approached about providing this care at our hospital. I had no experience with it whatsoever. And I would say that, you know, for anyone who hasn't been, you know, really touched by someone who's had this experience, that really having an open mind and trying to see what the world is like from their perspective is 
really the first step. It takes a lot of humility. And it also, you know, is something that really needs to be done with a lot of different expertise, like you right. said. So we as plastic surgeons are not mental health providers, although a lot of things that we do really impact people's psychosocial outcomes. But we do need to really rely on our colleagues who are within this community, who are specially trained to make assessments that we can make sure that we're going to be able to deliver a result that is going to be beneficial for these patients. But it's also really, really terrifying to look at the amount of violence and suicide and all of the other difficult consequences that are faced by this community when they aren't offered this type of treatment and that it is truly right. life-saving, not just life-changing. And this has been around for uh, like ever, for eternity. And uh, there was a really interesting history kind of about um, the development of these surgery. And I really had no idea how far back it went, but this is not anything new. It just may be new to us. And uh, I think that it's something that we really need to just uh, embrace with humility and try to right. um, kind of understand an experience of uh, the Haitian population that's really um, had a lot of uh, challenges having access to care. Okay. Well, wise words from Dr. Amanda Gosman on this uh, very, uh, you know, open and very important issue of gender affirmation. And, uh, and if we welcome your comments and thoughts. I think the goal has been to be open, uh, do things in teams, uh, a careful selection process, and then it's all about safety and outcomes that I really, I think, to optimize results and to, to get everybody, you know, to get it done in a place that's safe, but also to give you phenomenal outcomes. So thank you, Amanda, for coming and joining us and enlightening of us. Course. And we appreciate uh, uh, your wisdom on this. And if you have any questions or comments, please uh, don't hesitate to, con to, to contact me on my podcast or Dr. Amanda Gosman. Thank you again, Amanda. Thank you. 